Hi there. Good afternoon. Um, I'm Perry Boring, the founder and president of the Chamber of Digital Commerce. We're a trade association headquartered in Washington working on crypto policy, the public policy impacting digital assets and uh, blockchain technology. Um, so today we'll be talking about the macroeconomic drivers impacting the adoption of digital assets. We have an A-class team of speakers here. I'll have each of you just introduce yourselves, name, where you're from, and maybe just a quick overview of your firm's focus in the crypto space. Dan, sure. we'll start with you. Hi, hello everybody. Dan Tafiaro, 10T Holdings, uh, founder and CEO. We are a mid to late stage private equity firm that focuses exclusively and only on businesses uh, in the digital asset ecosystem. And um, as far as I know, I think we're the only ones out there right now uh, focusing just on the mid to late stage businesses. So we've put quite a bit of money to work in the first six months of the year and look forward to being involved in the space uh, for the foreseeable. Uh, hi, everyone. Bill Campbell. Uh, I'm a portfolio manager at DoubleLine Capital. Uh, DoubleLine is a $135 billion multi-asset management firm. Uh, I manage uh, the global currency and global interest rate strategies. Uh, we like to think of ourselves as um, you know, a forward-thinking macro firm. Uh, a lot of my research has been uh, in the crypto space on CBDC, CBDC adoption, and the DeFi wave and its implications, uh, you know, uh, the macroeconomic implications across economies, both uh, developed and emerging markets, and how it can both, uh, you know, uh, how it's developing itself, but how it impacts uh, the more traditional investments, and uh, more specifically, how it could be, you know, a disruptor to uh, macroeconomic models, currencies, and interest rates. Amazing. Hey, everybody. Matt Hogan. I'm the Chief Investment Officer at Bitwise Asset Management. Bitwise is a crypto asset manager. Uh, we're best known for having created and today running the world's largest crypto index fund called the Bitwise 10 Crypto Index Fund. We also have the first and largest DeFi index fund. We manage about a billion and a half in crypto assets, mostly for professional investors, uh, hedge funds, institutions, and, and the advisor market. Thanks, Matt. Uh, so Let's just start kind of with the basics when we think about the macroeconomic trends impacting the adoption of digital assets and just starting with money. Of course, uh, Satoshi called Bitcoin a peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system. Uh, just last weekend, the front page of the New York Times, an article on crypto that started with Bitcoin is changing the definition of money. For thousands of years, civilizations have flocked to commodities like gold and silver as money. Today, money looks very different. Um, what is your, um, and I'll just open this up to either of you, kind of to you, what is money? How is it changing? How is Bitcoin and crypto impacting that? Josh, you want me to um, start it off, please? Well, I think, uh, you know, maybe just taking a step back, obviously, besides a unit of account store of value, uh, you know, the legal tender, the unit of exchange in an economy, I think we need to think about, you know, uh, money as a public versus a private asset and a public, public versus a private good. Uh, you know, for a long time, uh, money has been thought of as a public good. And, uh, you know, I think that, uh, you know, the people in general have been willing to accept that premise. Then, you know, we hit the global financial crisis. Uh, 
in 2008, and we saw the expansion of you know, extraordinary uh, policies by governments, and that caused a rethinking, uh, you know, potentially of you know, a lot of the policies that were being put in place that uh, you know, maybe are expanding the monetary base faster than uh, people would uh, necessarily like. So that moves us to the private money side. Uh, I know crypto is you know, kind of uh, deemed itself as like the new bastion of uh, private money, but in the past we've had private money. We've had bank issue private notes, and you know, some of the issues that have come up with that is there's like preference of uh, you know, credit between different banks. Like, uh, you know, if banks are, if you have individual notes that are issued, uh, you know, there's going to be a credit preference between those. As, as so, there's going to be credit preference between uh, different cryptocurrencies. We've also had like forms of private money, uh, you know, throughout the credit card space. When we think about, you know, uh, you know, uh, the transactions from Visa and Mastercard, uh, even though that's thought of as credit, it's transactional. Uh, you know, that is also, uh, you know, has been a form of retail private money. So really, crypto is now uh, kind of bridging that gap, I believe, between, you know, the purely public good that we initially thought, uh, you know, money was to, you know, maybe more of the idea that, uh, you know, private actors and, uh, you know, uh, now decentralized private actors uh, can be a bigger player in the space and maybe can provide more institutional credibility than some of the governments. And, you know, not to jump the gun, but just to, you know, whet your appetite a little bit. I think, especially in emerging markets where institutional strength and, uh, you know, policies are, you know, fairly questionable and where economies tend to not trust their uh, sovereign currencies anyway and are dollarized, uh, crypto has, uh, you know, a very big window of opportunity, uh, you know, to potentially disrupt and transform those economies. Yeah, I, I agree with, with all of that. I mean, one, one thing if you study the history of money is that the history of money is never over. I think a lot of people sort of assumed that the history of money was over with the dollar being uh, uh, the king uh, and, and all currencies being public goods. And crypto is one challenge of that. But, but really, it's, it's evolved many times in the past. I mean, as you mentioned, this is not the first time. Yeah, uh, so the relationship of what money is to public and private sectors has changed. Yeah, no, that, that's a great point. It, and we're seeing significant tectonic shifts underway in what money is, how it's issued, how it's regulated, how we use it. Um, and you know, I think one of those big macroeconomic decisions was just over 50 years ago in 1971 when Nixon closed the gold, um, the gold window, which really launched us into this global fiat experiment. So just in either of your minds, you know, how has that impacted kind of where we are today, um, and what do you see as the, the future of fiat, given how much has changed just in the past 50-year timeline? You know, I, I wanted to just say a word on the other question just for a second, and I'll sure. link it into this one, which is that um, money, at least for me, has always been about return. And look, you've got negative 3 4 5% interest rates in the U.S. if you're using the CPI to deflate the, uh, as the deflator. And I think that's caused a lot of people to think about, you know, the nature of money that, 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 that never thought about it before. And one of the interesting things is that crypto really is a, has been a retail-led um, phenomena. Uh, you know, you have you know, average Joes out there who have been long Bitcoin since 2011, 12, Ethereum from 15, and the institutions have been late. Um, and they're still very late as far as I, I can see. I mean, it's, it's still early for the general trend. And so I think the idea that there's return uh, on your money or your cash or however you think about it in this new digital asset ecosystem 
is really what, what's driving it. Um, Bitcoin as a store of value, uh, Ethereum as a, as a little bit different, but also something of you know, lasting and, and permanent value. So I, I, I think that when you're looking for alternatives, there have to be alternatives. And I think this has now grown up as a real alternative. Right. So, sorry, I, I, I didn't ask, answer your question. And I'm a gold guy too, so I didn't answer your question about the DPEG, uh, the Nixon, the Nixon DPEG. I'm not sure uh, what was the what, what was the gist of what was the gist of what, what yes, was so the since, impact? Right. Yeah. The, and when we went off the gold standard. Yeah. And how that's changed money and how that has impacted kind of the future of fiat. Right. Well, I mean, Go I mean, I, guys, I, I mean that, that it's allowed the authorities to inflate uh, in an unlimited way. They're not pegged to anything. And so, again, another reason for uh, Bitcoin, which is in finite, there's a finite amount of it. And even the other cryptocurrencies, even like Ethereum is not really, the supply doesn't really expand in the way that fiat has. And of course, post COVID, you saw massive expansion in the balance sheets. And again, I think the average person out there is saying, hey, uh, I'm losing purchasing power. I used to be able to buy this and now I can't. And so there's no anchor. Um, but that being said, you know, life is better today than it was for most people than in 1971. So I don't wanna say, okay, well, that decision 50 years ago was a disaster. I think it, we've had tremendous prosperity. Um, so I think it's a, the answer to that's more nuanced. Sure. I, I want to build on that nuance, if, if it's yeah. okay, and, and then you yeah. can jump in. I, I think that's exactly right. Studying gold standards through history, they don't work that great in terms of launching economic growth either. The problem with fiat and inflationary uh, fiat currencies is that eventually it ends poorly. Uh, and, it, and it gets worse in sort of an exponential fashion. And so, you know, from, from the, the fact we went off the gold standard in 1970 makes, the ne makes it necessary to have an alternative, which Bitcoin is emerging as an alternative, and it becomes more and more important and more and more uh, important as a break on the, on the natural tendency for fiat systems to eventually hit a bad state of inflation. Uh, and I think it's just a, a, a time pattern. I think that's the nuance in it. And if I can then further build on it, uh, the inflation point and the debasement point are, uh, you know, fantastic points. And you know, uh, depegging off the gold standard allowed the explosion of debt, allowed the explosion of credit. But what we've seen more recently, especially across developed markets, is you know the explosion of the monetary base, the explosion of you know all of the central bank activity has actually caused anemic growth. Like I don't think anybody can argue that Japan has seen very strong growth, that Europe has seen very strong growth, and then after the bounce back from the recession, uh, you know that we. Saw in uh, tw March 2020, uh, you know, I think the U.S. glide path is coming back, uh, you know, lower. Now, people can say, you know, look, the cause of that might be a big debt burden, uh, but what I really think is happening is uh, in the quantitative easing policies that have happened, what we've seen is, uh, you know, taking of private assets out of the market, but really the explosion of institutional digital money, which is wholesale reserves, and banks ultimately have not been willing to lend that out or lend it out beyond large institutions. So, uh, you know, I'm getting to the point that I think one of the structural drivers of low growth over time has been, uh, you know, the uh, headwind to productivity that, you know, large banks consolidate 
regulating small regional banks and uh, you know, the unwillingness of them to lend to the SME sector is actually causing. Now this is where DeFi and crypto can actually become you know, a potentially game changer, not only in our economy, but other economies in addressing this problem of productivity growth. Because if, uh, you know, say through pass-through tokens, uh, small and uh, medium-sized uh, enterprises are able to then access their customer base, get new sources of credit, get new sources of lending, and be able to spend that both uh, you know, on new business lines and uh, you know, potentially uh, you know, more hiring. Uh, I think that that can both address the productivity problem, but it could also address the structural overhang that we have uh, you know, on the employment side as well. And uh, you know, I'll maybe stop there, but happy to dive in if you want. Yeah, well, to build on that, um, Bill, I mean, you, you've highlighted that we're in a, a really just critical moment and key moment of government intervention. And w what are some of those areas where you have um, you know, in, you know, government influence on the markets? What type of distortions is that making? And ultimately, what are the results of those? Well, I, I, I think I touched on uh, a few, but I can't overemphasize the uh, you know, importance of the central bank policy, not only on you know, being a headwind to productivity growth, but also squeezing out returns. Like when we look across the risk asset spectrum, uh, you know, a lot of uh, my credit colleagues are telling me uh, you know, that you know, we're back to you know, the historical lows that we saw in spreads uh, you know, prior to uh, 2020. So uh, you know, I think that central banks are unwilling to allow markets to clear. Crypto markets are completely unregulated, uh, but I still think that they're in much of like the adoption phase. Like there is a lot of risk like embedded in them. They, to me, look much more like a VC market that has you know tremendous uh, you know potential upside opportunity, but you know also a tremendous amount of volatility. Uh, but they do have uh, you know I, I think that. Um, you know, just sticking on the government intervention side, the other big aspect of it is uh, the amount of fiscal policy uh, and regulatory policy that's been put in place. We're seeing, you know, uh, continued expansion of, you know, fiscal trying to actually push money to individuals. And, you know, to get back to the inflation argument, this time around is different from, uh, you know, prior cycles uh, after recessions. The, you know, fiscal policy is actually pushing money to areas where we can see inflation. We're seeing higher commodity prices, we're seeing higher housing prices, we're seeing higher wages right now. So all of that, uh, you know, is real, uh, you know, on the inflationary side. Uh, and, I, and finally, just my last point on this, uh, you know, I think blockchain is unique in like the technological solution that it's providing. It provides, uh, you know, low latency, immediate settlement. It provides uh, protection of individual privacy. And, uh, you know, it's potentially the new wiring for the financial system. So for people who are thinking about, you know, who, who are kind of pushing the whole DeFi blockchain uh, revolution aside, I think they're missing that this could potentially be the new plumbing for the financial system that we all need to pay attention to. Yeah, very key point. Um, just to kind of highlight the point on inflation, when I was a columnist for Forbes, I did a story penned. Um, if you want to know the real rate of inflation, don't bother with the CPI. And I interviewed a statistician at um, the, the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics and talked about how they come up with their numbers. And it's very convoluted. Of course, they're tracking the price of goods where, you know, as someone who studied monetary policy in college, really it's the monetary base that really is, I think, the key thing you should be looking at um, in terms of inflation. So I think some of those numbers that are kind of put forward to measure inflation are a little funny. 
Um, but I don't think anybody can argue that there's been this unbelievable expansion of the monetary base. We hear a lot about concerns of inflation. Um, even Senator Cynthia Lummis has very publicly said this is a huge concern for her and her constituents, and that's why she's bought, invested in Bitcoin, and even encouraging her constituents in the state of Wyoming to do so as well. Uh, so Matt, maybe I'll kind of focus on you, given what you guys do at Bitwise, really looking at this as an advisor, a, a financial advisor. Bitcoin um, has really kind of proved itself to be a non-correlated asset. The Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis published a report in 2018 that says Bitcoin has the potential to emerge as its own asset class to be used for diversification purposes in portfolios. And I think that speaks a lot to your thesis at Bitwise. Um, however, um, there's been a bit of hesitancy in, with financial advisors um, advising people to use Bitcoin as a diversification tool. Can you speak to how you guys are thinking about that and kind of how you see that and kind of wh where we're at today from a, a fiduciary um, oversight um, perspective? Sure. Uh, if, you, if you didn't know it was called Bitcoin or crypto and you put it into a portfolio optimizer, you would definitely want 1% to 5% of your portfolio to be allocated to it. <clears throat> Uh, the reason is, over any meaningful period, if you put crypto into a portfolio and you rebalance, as advisors do, it contributes to your absolute and risk-adjusted returns. We have a white paper on bitwiseinvestments.com. I mean this literally. Every three-year period in history, including periods with 80-plus percent drawdowns, if you put it into a portfolio, it increases your absolute and risk-adjusted returns. Um, when we talk to uh, advisors about it, there, there's two, there's really two key things that matter to, uh, to them. Uh, the, first, um, the, the, the first thing that they have to get over is that it's not going to zero. The reason it's important to get over the fact that it's not going to zero is that if you want to put it in a portfolio and rebalance it, you have to assume it's not going to zero in order to, to harvest the volatility, or you can make a small allocation. The other piece is just to appropriately size your allocation. As long as you keep your crypto uh, allocation at a reasonable level, it doesn't create mass drawdowns in your portfolio. So um, we've seen enormous growth from the advisor market. Uh, there's enormous interest from the advisor market. I'll end with one more stat on that interest. Uh, in January, we wrote the CFA Institute's first ever guide to Bitcoin, blockchain, and crypto. Uh, I believe it's their most downloaded research report ever. Uh, just as a sign of how much interest there is. So I think that's the next big market in crypto. It's the advisor space. Yeah. We represent about 30 private equity funds at the chamber. So we've, we've gotten the opportunity to see how different fund managers are evaluating crypto. Um, and really the, the, the general principle across the board is if you introduce um, Bitcoin into your typical portfolio, 1% to 5%, you see volatility go down and performance go up. So I've heard a number of people who had said, once that is more widely understood, it will be seen as um, uh, almost irresponsible to not uh, recommend for clients to invest a uh, you know, percentage of their portfolio into Bitcoin for that diversi diversification piece. Um, further, in March of this year, the chairman of the Fed, Jerome Powell, in um, his testimony to, to Congress, he said that Bitcoin is more of a substitute for gold than the dollar. So uh, just to kind of expand on this concept, um, would love to get, um, Dan or Bill, your thoughts on, um, since the Fed owns gold and other central banks around the world own gold, 
Um, what are your thoughts on the Fed and, and central banks substituting um, gold for Bitcoin? Well, I, I don't know if they're ready to substitute it. Um, yeah, I think he was really talking more theoretically that the principles behind Bitcoin uh, as hard money are similar to the principles behind gold as hard money. Uh, people don't generally think of the dollar really, I mean, as hard money. It's used to transact and it's the, you know, the currency of the world and it's super liquid and it's not physical. Um, so I think he was thinking about it in those terms, but I, I think that's, that's very right, that store value, Bitcoin is store value as a, a high form of, of collateral. Um, I think that's absolutely right. I, you know, there are other cryptocurrencies potentially that you might you know, use for other purposes, but um, in terms of that pristine collateral, and again, it's all laid out in Satoshi's white paper. Um, you know, I, I do think that, and I think he's acknowledging this too, that it really is an invention. Bitcoin is an invention. And I always say it's an invention akin to the invention of the combustion engine or the discovery of electricity. And it's just that paper, people don't, I think, understand, solved a problem, the Byzantine General's problem, that had been unsolved for hundreds of years and the problem of distributed trust. And yeah. so that um, aspect of Bitcoin um, as a solid sort of secure uh, backed by the proof of work algorithm, I think is, you know, is absolutely right, but not necessarily a replacement dollar. We'll come back to that thought. Yeah. Um, Bill, I want to focus on central bank digital currencies for a moment. So also, I mean, we've all seen the grayscale drop gold commercials and uh, kind of how, uh, in, you know, just this um, past month, El Salvador adopted <coughs> Bitcoin as legal tender. Um, so kind of looking at it from the central bank perspective, there's now, you know, according to the Bank for International Settlements, over 80% of central banks around the world are already experimenting with CBDCs. So how do you see uh, things like um, Bitcoin, ETH, you know, other cryptocurrencies living in a CBDC world? Are these a threat? Are these a complement? Will they be interoperable? What, what, what does this look like fast forward 10, 20 years from now? Uh, it's a great question, and I think, uh, in my mind, we need to start segmenting, uh, you know, different parts of the market out to, you know, try to get a framework for understanding and thinking about it. I think that, you know, central bank activities, the way that they really control, you know, markets and economies are through uh, controlling the monetary base, setting interest rates, and controlling credit. And uh, DeFi in general and blockchain technology is actually disrupting, uh, you know, each one of those. So, uh, you know, for the monetary base, obviously, you're having new cryptocurrencies, uh, you know, come out that are being accepted as legal tender in El Salvador, for example. Uh, you know, interest rates, uh, you know, are obviously manipulated, uh, you know, across the globe, and you're having new interest rates market, new interest rate markets via staking. And, uh, you know, then when we think of credit creation, I do think there's a lot of, uh, you know, uh, there, there is a lot of potential for, uh, you know, credit creation in the crypto and uh, blockchain network. In emerging markets, uh, you're seeing about, you know, especially across Latin America, we think Peru, Colombia, even Mexico, about half of the population is unbanked. So, uh, you know, crypto is actually, uh, you know, you see a lot of DeFi protocols being picked up fairly aggressively because it's permissionless and you get, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, the debit card style, uh, you know, transactions, uh, you know, that uh, come with like that, I would call it, you know, uh, banking 1.0. 
Uh, but you, you can imagine that uh, you know, there's going to be a lot more banking services that are going to be provided across the globe, across these different networks. So I think that central banks are looking carefully at like, you know, uh, I, I don't think you, they want to stifle uh, you know, this growth, but they also don't want to lose control of the credit making mechanism in that. As far as uh, you know, the, the currency itself, uh, when we think of CBDCs, I think you're just thinking of like, you know, this is true, uh, you know, retail digital money. And right now we have that in the form of stable coins. And we, we look at like digital transactions. I'm sure, Dan, you've seen this 85% of one side of all transactions are, you know, via a stable coin, whether, you know, it's USDC, USDT or the like. Uh, so once you introduce, you know, the digital dollar, uh, you know, and you don't have to have the issue of, uh, you know, uh, trying to understand the collateral backing of the stablecoin. I know there's been some questions about Tether. There's a big debate, but, uh, you know, would the CBDC or the digital dollar become the preferred stablecoin in this ecosystem as long as it didn't do what China did and set, you know, a centralized blockchain that removes your privacy? If it truly is in the form of a stablecoin that's settleable on ETH, that's settleable on, you know, any other, uh, you know, the blockchain networks, potentially it becomes, you know, the superior solution. Solution. Uh, but and then the final point is, I think that you know the U.S. dollar's reserve currency status is threatened by the DeFi uh, revolution. And just to you know quickly expand on that, we're seeing uh, you know I think it's more the digital payment systems and the cross-border payment systems that provide the threat more than the CBDC itself. So the BIS through Project Dunbar is looking at in Asia between Australia, Singapore, Malaysia, and I think a couple of other banks trying to integrate the payment systems via blockchain. Uh, you know, in that region. And by the way, there's a new trade agreement, uh, you know, RCEP, that is looking at the regional cooperation of trade in that region. So uh, as countries, like, begin to develop this technology, as you have new, you know, regional trading agreements, isn't it logical that 60% of, of reserves being denominated in U.S. dollars might not be necessary? Uh, you know, don't you think that you, as a country, would prefer to, like, settle uh, the majority of your trade on a bilateral basis with your balance of uh, payments trading partners? And I think that, you know, removing the dollar as kind of that uh, you know, uh, fundamental denomination for trade, fundamental denomination for commodities, uh, commodity settlement, uh, runs the risk in the long term of uh, you know, being a potential dethroning uh, you know, of the dollar's US uh, reserve currency status. You know, I mean, I, I'm not so sure about that. I mean, I just think that, look, 60% or whatever the number is, is too big, and you mm -hmm. know, after the war, it made sense. There were the, all the other economies were at zero and they were flattened. And for many years, I think people just got, you know, used to having the dollar in the center. Um, but if you just look at GDP, uh, if you right, the U.S. is I think what 25% of world GDP. It's it's actually come less, down. It's it about 20? it's closer to 20, and right. China's gone up to 20. Right. So I mean, and it, Europe's it's, about 22. Right, it, it's been inconsistent for years that you know that the U.S. Uh, that the dollar was overweight in everyone's portfolio. So I think it's just a, you know, a slow transition. I mean, as a macro guy for 25 years in the hedge fund business, I always, you know, I, I always remember the uh, quip that, you know, macro always takes longer than you, you think it will. You know, I'm sitting there with investments and you think it's going to be three months and it's three years. Um, and I think this is a perfect uh, case, you know, of this. I, I don't think the dollar's going away. I don't think America's going away. I think, and this might segue into the next question you want to ask, but I think that if we start to make some very poor decisions on the regulatory front here vis-a-vis -vis the digital asset ecosystem and blockchain technology, I think that is dangerous for us because the U.S. is already behind 
uh, I think the rest of the world in adoption and understanding. 90% of total world cryptocurrency volume is outside the US. So there is a chance here that the world moves forward without us at the lead. Mm -hmm. And that sort of worries me a lot more yeah, is that then, the real? I, okay, I stole a little bit of your thunder there because I know you wanted no, no. to talk about about <laughs> no, I that. Am, but I mean, especially in, in my role as a you know an industry advocate, working with public policymakers, very careful not to kind of pin um, the crypto space against the, the status of, of of the U.S. dollars, the world reserve currency. In fact, I don't think it's a helpful argument to say they're competitors, especially with something like Bitcoin that's really operating as a store of value, you know, akin to a digital gold. That serves a very different function than payments. And I think both can coexist and have, you have kind of U.S. dollars and stable coins as your transactional layer and Bitcoin as that store of value. Um, Dan, I did want to come back to your thought on um, uh, kind of the combustion in engine. And you have said Bitcoin and blockchain, they're a historic invention akin to the invention of the combustion yeah. engine right. and will have a similar transformation, um, transfer, tr transformative impact on our world. Mm -hmm. So I think kind of what you're getting to is that this isn't just about money. There's a revolution beyond just money and the crypto and, yeah. and blockchain technology. So um, one of the things that I really challenge kind of our members to help articulate better is how this technology is going to have an impact on the daily lives of normal people, not necessarily just like your hedge fund managers and your investors, but the citizenry. How is this technology going to impact the average person for good? Yeah, I'll just say one quick thing and then I'll let the guys uh, answer as well. But I mean, I think it's a revolution in trust and so it's a permanent record. Um, I've, call, I've, I've read and other people have also called it a truth machine. Um, the cover of The Economist a couple right. years ago. That's right, that's right. And there's a book also. Um, but I think that's what the real, if you want to be abstract, think about all of the things in, in, the, you know, in the course of human interaction that rely on trust. And a lot of times there isn't that trust there. And so... I mean, I think that's the really big revolution. I mean, I don't know if you guys. I, I yeah, I, I completely agree. I think being well, the other you know the other interesting aspect of blockchain is uh, you know being able to protect privacy and anonymity while still having publicly available uh, you know a, a vast amount of publicly available information. Yeah. So far, we've been lagging China as far as AI development and uh, you know and network effects because of you know the concerns about privacy. So blockchain, you know, moving outside of finance, you know, has the potential to, you know, allow network effects, the Internet of Things, like take off medical records. Like it, there are a lot of potential use cases that, uh, you know, can come out of this technology. And I think that all comes from your point yeah. that the key element is trust yeah. and, and keeping privacy. Well, and that this also is, uh, you know, a massive decentralized network that from a security perspective is really bulletproof. I mean, it could end up becoming, you know, and I, I'm not saying which network specifically, could be the Bitcoin network, could be another one, ends up becoming the value layer, you know, for the entire internet. Um, and so, I, I don't want to bring it back to this again, but I worry just now about the U.S. sort of not, not being innovative enough and 100%. not seeing these bigger picture concepts. Yeah, I'll, I'll agree with that, and then I want to talk big picture as well, because that's fun. Um, I think we're already blowing it from a regulatory perspective uh, to put one very narrow, maybe controversial 
uh, dot on it. If, if I agree with Dan that the U.S. dollar and the U.S. position is in a slow fade as a relationship to its GDP, we had this sterling opportunity once in a lifetime to delay that and extend it if we had embraced Libra as its dollar-backed stablecoin. Oh, yeah. What better way to get the yeah. entire world yeah. to use dollars in every transaction and to put a huge amount of money in a dollar-backed asset? And we just turned up our nose at it. I mean, it was literally a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, uh, and I think we totally blew it, uh, and we can't, we can't get that back. Um, the, the, like, what will your daily life look like is something that crypto struggles with. And the reason it struggles, I think, is that the primitives that crypto introduces are so large. Uh, Dan, you mentioned trust. Uh, you can talk about digital property rights. You can talk about instantaneous settlement. And the landscape of possibilities that are created by these primitives is so massive that the crypto industry typically falls back on small examples, like improving the remittance system or lowering fees or allowing people to make their financial assets more usable. And those are all true and those are all the baby steps. But just like in the like early 90s, predicting all the things that the internet would do was very, very difficult. Uh, it's often good to dwell on one or many of those primitives and just spend a week thinking about what does digital property rights mean 20 years from now? It's easy to look at $3 million digital JPEGs of rocks and laugh at NFTs, but if you stop thinking of it like that and start thinking of it as the first instantiation of digital property rights and allow your mind to wander for a little bit of time, thinking about what that means in 10 years is huge. So it's hard to make them very specific, it's hard to predict the future, but the primitives in crypto are so powerful and so sort of world changing, it's very exciting to think out five, 10 years. Yeah, but you know, I would say one thing is that older people, they say, well, what do I need digital property rights for versus the sort of under 30 crowd that are gamers and they are very, it's very natural for them to think about digital property rights because a lot of their assets are, are, are already digital, right? And so, go ahead, what were you going to... No, I had this great conversation with a reporter, and he was like, I don't understand why someone would spend, like, $5,000 on, on, like, a sword, and it's, it's not even a real sword, it's digital. <laughs> I'm like, like, it's got so much more utility to people than a physical sword. When's the last time you used a physical sword? <laughs> it's been a long time. But, yeah, like, these yeah. kids are using digital swords all the time to create status, to win rewards. Yeah, it's also that. because they're spending eight hours a day online, and that's something you know, that none of us older guys can really, I mean, we're on the phones and everything, but literally, I think it's eight hours a day is the average, you know, usage, and these gamers are on even more. And so they are going to the, you know, metaverse, to this, these virtual spaces to actually meet people and hang out and live and, you know, digital land and all of this stuff, people are living their actual lives. Yeah. I mean, we're not, I mean, but, <laughs> It's more and more that way. And so for them, digital property rights, I mean, that's that, there's not even a jump, right? Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it, it is hard yeah. for, 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 for older people to get their head around that, I agree. But the digital property rights is so, it's such a huge concept. And I think we need to figure out on regulation or litigation, you know, what exactly does, you know, it, what exactly is protected, uh, you know, when we start writing, uh, you know, individual code. But when that's figured out, it has the ability to provide, you know, a lot more liquidity to like venture capital space, private equity space, like a lot of spaces that, you know, historically, you know, maybe haven't been accessed as, as widely. But also we need to think about 
now we have these new entities that are digital autonomous organizations that are made up of a bunch of individuals that kind of vote on like, you know, what the platform should do. So what rights, uh, you know, are afforded, uh, you know, to those organizations? How can they link into the true economy? Can a DAO or digital autonomous organization make a contract with a private company? And then what happens if the DAO does something that harms an individual? What liability do all of the you know, uh, holders in the DAO actually face? And these are the things that need to be sorted out. And uh, when they are, I think you'll have a tremendous amount of institutional capital chase it, because I think you know, the, the, the scope for expansion is tremendous. But right now, we're just not clear on a lot of these like, key issues. And I think those are rubber where, where rubber meets the road issues. So coming back to the public policy arguments for crypto, this year has been a, a year of transformation in Washington, D.C. We have the Biden administration, um, you know, of course, a change from a Republican to a Democrat administration. Both the House and Senate are um, Democrats have the majority. So there's a very strong focus on the social issues today and how those are applying to crypto. Um, we we are not a partisan organization at the chamber. We're very, very careful to make sure this technology is not seen through partisan lenses, um, and we don't think it should be. However, it does seem that there is a more critical view from the left than the right. Um, so as we're trying to think of the social case, you know, why, what is the social case for blockchain technology? What are the benefits from a, um, a progressive perspective? Um, in your view, for um, for digital assets and blockchain technology, I, I think the the most uh, basic item that I would say is it's the democratization, uh, you know, a, a more demo a, a way to democratize, uh, you know, finance and lending, the permissionless aspect, uh, you know, that you know is provided by the DeFi, you know, all these DeFi protocols, and you know what that opens up for people, uh, you know, in uh, underserved communities in the U.S. and underserved communities in uh, emerging markets is tremendous. Uh, and just putting the proper protections in place to prevent uh, bad actors from hurting people, I think it, a light touch would be, uh, you know, the, the right way to do it. Defining, uh, you know, what exactly activities are between credit, lending, securitization uh, is also important. But I think from the social aspect, it's that, you know, uh, it, it's the true permissionless democratization of, you know, providing that access to everyone. Uh, I live in the People's Republic of Berkeley, California, so <laughs> I, I have some, some feel. I mean, the, the thing from a liberal perspective is that they hate banks. Uh, and our financial system is built so the poor people pay the highest fees as a percentage of, of assets. And so the story for how crypto improves that uh, is by making that, making that not true, by democratizing access, by lowering fees, by opening opportunity. Um, the examples we have today, again, are either isolated, like remittances, right? The cost of sending remittances home is about one-twelfth. In other words, you work, you know, one month a year uh, uh, just to pay those fees, and those can go to, to zero. Um, but there are more and more examples, right? In the DeFi space, it's not just Jane Street that's making markets and earning money from that. You could be, too. Uh, anyone could be. Uh, and people are doing that today. So I do think there's a progressive story to crypto. Uh, that's maybe poorly told, but I, I think it'll I think it'll gather steam. So we've got about a minute left. So I'll just do quick closing statements um, from each of you. We've talked about macro. I'm going to come to micro. So um, we're uh, you know within that 12 to 18 month period after the Bitcoin halving, there's different theories different um, investors have on kind of what's going to happen. 
um, over the, the, uh, between now and the end of the year, are we going to continue to see a bull market or will we see a correction like the past two halvings? Uh, 20 seconds each. Dan, we'll start with you. Uh, I think you have to be a long-term holder in this uh, business. So what it does now over the next three, four months I, is sort of, you know, jump ball. But I, I think we're going to head up over 100,000 probably in the next six to nine months in Bitcoin. And Ethereum, you know, could also continue. But it's more long-term. I think in the next five, six, seven years, we can be at three, four, five hundred thousand on Bitcoin. And, you know, I don't see why not 20, 25,000 on Ethereum. Yeah. I'll, I'll just say I think it's a long-term play, and I completely agree with what Dan said. Um, I also agree it's a long-term <laughs> play, but I'd remind people that crypto is the single best-performing asset class in the world this year, and it went down 50% this year. So well, I think yeah, the 10-year is 250% annualized. Okay, right. <laughs> so the greatest return of any asset in the history of the world that we could find going back to, I don't know, caveman times. So you just need a little bit, right? Yes, and then you need to, to not panic it when, it, when it sells off. A very macro ex uh, uh, answers from the macro team here. <laughs> we'll end on that high note. Um, please help me thank each of our speakers. Thank you, Dan, Bill, and Matt.